Hello and welcome to Tajin, a podcast about North Africa. My name is Graham Cornwell. I'm a doctoral candidate in history at Georgetown University. And I'm here today in Rabat, Morocco at the NIMAR, the Dutch Institute in Rabat. I'm joined by Jelens Mahtat, a doctoral candidate at Leiden University in the Netherlands, working on oral traditions in Morocco. He's also instructor and lecturer here at the Dutch Institute now. And uh, Jelens, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Today we'll have a, a different format for the podcast. Yellens is actually going to share some of these, um, these stories and traditions with us um, in full, and then we'll, uh, we'll ask some questions about what they mean and, and his work with them. So before we get started, Yellens, can you tell us, where do these, these stories that you'll share with us come from? Where in Morocco? Well, if you are talking about folk tales, I... I honestly can tell you that uh, when it comes to the origins, nobody is really exactly informative about their origins and when they started. So, uh, in uh, within in, in the lack of any basic information about the origins of these stories, we are asked to remain with the idea, or at least the impression at this point, that um, they originated with the people who told them at some point in history, and in this case, some point in, in Amaziri history in North Africa. We also have stories that uh, come from the Middle Atlas, and you find uh, other stories that sound like them or that, that share the same lines and events uh, from other regions of Morocco or even other regions in Algeria. And uh, which makes us think that uh, these are stories that are that were shared in a wide uh, uh, range uh, uh, in in North Africa. And as part of your own project, you've been collecting these stories, um, translating to the, them to some extent. Where and how are you are you doing this collection? I limited myself uh, to uh, the Middle Atlas. And uh, specific, more specifically, in the region of Ulmes in uh, central Morocco, and this is uh, the Zayan region. This is what it is called, and uh, so that's where I. It has a specific dialect. It has a specific accent and a specific culture, also. Uh, so, and and that is the source of my uh, my uh, oral uh, tradition. And what's the the goal. I mean, um, you're collecting these uh, and, and compiling them. Do you feel there's a danger of these stories dying out? Are these still widely circulated? Are there still um, media or, or forums where these stories uh, and folk tales and proverbs are shared? That is true. And many uh, many stories are disappearing with the death of the ones who carry them. Uh, so there is that, you know, keeping a record of things dying, keeping the memory going also. That is uh, a piece of work for for uh, the survival of the language itself. You know, these stories are uh, narrated in, in the Middle Atlas uh, region in Berber. So that also helps to provide us with, with, uh, with textual material for the people who want to study it. So I'm sure lots of people are going to use my stories also to do work 
that is related to linguistics, for example. So I believe that's material for uh, further uh, studying. Um, besides that, there's also a, a, a personal personal joy to listen to those stories and those traditions. And uh, maybe one third reason would be that uh, was at some point in time for me to come back to the roots, to go back to where I was born and listen to the people that I grew up with and uh, listen to what they had to say. And you mentioned um, about about language and uh, that these are, are told are told in Berber and um, in Tamazir in particular. Uh, are they ever told in other languages? I mean, do these stories find their way translated into Arabic or Derija or, or French? So the stories that I have, not exactly. But uh, like I said earlier, th- I find stories in other regions of Morocco that are analogous to, to the ones that I have. It's not the same material, of course. As you know, every narrator, every storyteller has his or her own style. They might also enrich the story with more details that other narrators do not ha- have access to or maybe time uh, for. Uh, but but still, the, the, you find other, other versions of the same stories in the Milatlas. Also, you find those in the, in, the, uh, in the Rif Mountains in northern Morocco and also in southern Morocco and in Tashlhit speaking uh, south. Uh, and people have access to those. There are translations in English for those stories. There are translations in Dutch also, but done by uh, ethnologists or uh, researchers in general. Terrific. Well, I think we've we've set the stage and the context um, for these stories. I just want to ask one more question about how you actually recorded these stories. Who gave them to you? Where you found them? How you uh, got them down? Um, you know, just so we get an idea of, of sort of the physical process of of storytelling and uh, of story making, and, and of as well as these proverbs and, and important sayings and um, other oral traditions. You won't be surprised if I told you that uh, for uh, many uh, folk tales that I have collected, I didn't even have to move out of my family. I grew up in a family who, whose individuals were, 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 were very talkative and very sharing and a loud family. And I happen to have a brother who's a storyteller himself. And uh, I have six or seven stories that he told me. Uh, one of them I'll share with you today. And uh, so what I do is just record them. Like uh, First we'll listen to him. He tells the story off record and then we, we record it. And uh, I, I plug it into my computer and I listen to every word of it and transcribe it and then later on try to find the most appropriate translation to it. That's how the process works. If you had to ask me about songs, then... Uh, you know, the uh, the usual process. You go buy a CD, and uh, that's a lot easier. You listen to the song, and you write down the lyrics, and you transcribe it, and um, and you translate it. Um, well, I, I don't want to delay anymore. I think we've set a good context for this story. So um, I'm going to turn it over to you, uh, Yellens, and you can, you can share the story uh, 
with our um, with our listeners. Once upon a time, in a little village, there was a community of people who uh, shared everything and who used to spend some time at a mosque in the tribe. And they used to go to the mosque to pray. And they used to go to the mosque to tell each other their stories, their anecdotes, their family business. And they happened to have one knife that they used for uh, shaving beards. And once that knife was stolen. And so the people in the, in the mosque, when they realized that the knife was stolen, they asked around who has stolen the knife and uh, nobody, nobody recognized, nobody confessed. And so they had to pray to God that whomsoever stole that knife might God tie him up to the mosque so that he would never be able to leave. And God heard that prayer, and he answered it. And so what happened was that when the prayers were done, everyone, everybody left except for the man who stole the knife. He was tied up to one of the poles in the mosque, and nobody noticed. So everybody was uh, running to leave the mosque back home for lunch, maybe for dinner. And uh, as the man was tied up in the mosque, his family realized that he didn't come for, for food. And so his daughter, uh, his wife, was wondering where he was, and so she had the idea to send her daughter to the mosque to check whether he was still there, which she did. She went to the mosque and, uh, to her surprise, found out that her father was in the mosque. And she said, Father, what are you doing in the mosque? This is dinner time or maybe lunch time. Let's go and eat. And he said, oh, my daughter, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I can't leave the mosque because I'm tied up. And why was that? He said, because I stole something from the mosque and people prayed and God answered the prayer. And so uh, his daughter helpless couldn't you know she couldn't do anything about it and she went back home and she uh, told her mom that her father could leave the mosque and from then on of course the only solution they had is to prepare food for him and send it to the mosque which she did for uh, several days one day after her mom prepared the food put it in a basket she took it to the mosque and at the entrance she noticed that there was something more than her father in the mosque. There was actually a lion. And the lion was devouring the men. She got scared, she threw off the food and she ran away. She was so confused that she didn't run away home, she ran away in the other direction. And she was running and running and running and calling her father. Which was, oh, father, father, how much has he eaten of you? And so the father would answer, He has reached my knees. And then he goes on and on until the, 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 the father dies. He got devoured by the lion. And now the lion who has noticed 
the girl, he started running after her also in order to devour her. And at some point, the girl saw a bumbo stick and she lifted it up and suddenly one little bird sat on it. And so she started a conversation with the bird. The bird was called the bird of the bamboo stick. Thajdet Oranim. And so she would call Thajdet Oranim. Thajdet Oranim Oranim Thajdet Meizrid. Meaning Thajdet Oranim Thajdet Oranim Bird of bamboo Bird of bamboo What do you see? And so at some point when the lion started running after her the bird high in the sky could see something like a hare she said I see something following you and it looks like a, a, a hare and then the girl runs and runs and runs for a distance and then again she asks the bamboo stick uh, the bamboo bird bamboo bird bamboo bird what do you see and then the bamboo uh, bird answers I see something as big as a dog, meaning the lion was getting closer. And the bamboo bird says, run, run, it's getting closer. And she would run on and on and on again for a distance, and then at some point she asks, asking her again what she sees. And then, of course, when the bird of bamboo on the bamboo stick, um, sees that the lion was so close, she says, I can see that there is a lion following you. It's bigger than the hare, it's bigger than the dog, now it's the lion. And at some point the bamboo uh, bird got uh, afraid and she said, goodbye, I'm going to leave you. And so the girl threw down the bamboo stick and started running, and as she could see the lion following her. At some point she sees a, uh, a shepherd. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you. Oh, shepherd, I ask your protection. I am running. There is a lion following me. Shepherd says, I have nothing to do against a lion. He's stronger than anybody else, and I am helpless. All I can do for you is that I could give him a lamb to distract him from following you, which he did. By the time the lion got to the shepherd, the shepherd says, Hey, uncle... Lion. Everybody called him Uncle. Amizim. Uncle Lion. Come over here. I have something for you. The lion says, what do you have for me? He says, I have a lamb for you. And so the lion starts devouring the lamb until he got satisfied and left. And by then the girl has run uh, a bit of a distance far away from the lion. But the lion is not slow. It's just the opposite. Swift and strong. And so he started running after the girl again. And at some point, the girl reaches uh, another shepherd, and she asks him, Oh, shepherd, I need your protection. There's a lion following me. And he said, You know, the lion is the strongest, and I am helpless. There's nothing I can do for you, but maybe I can offer something to the lion to distract him again. So she said, I will uh, be happy if you do so. So please help me. And he said, you know, I have a calf that I can give him. And so he gave him a calf which distracted the lion and kept him away from the girl for some time. 
except that it will be the same thing when he is finished, is strong and swift and starts to follow, to run after her again. Until the girl reaches uh, a farm where, there, where she saw a mule. And she went up to the mule and said, please mule, save me. And she said, you know, there's nothing I can do, but maybe I can hide you on my back if you can bear my smell. She said, I can bear your smell. She said, so then, okay, why don't you get in between me and and saddlebag and hide yourself. Uh, if the lion comes to uh, in front of me, I'll bite him. If he comes from the back, I will uh, kick him off. When the lion reached the place and saw that the girl was in between the saddlebag and the mule, and he couldn't do anything. He tried to approach the mule, but the mule was a lot stronger. And so the last thing he did was he wanted to ask to, to, to mark the girl so that he could remember her. So he said, you know, I'm helpless. I'm not going to eat you up, but if I'm going to ask you just a favor. And she said, what is it? He said, if you could smile to me, I will just be happy and leave. Which she did. She smiled. She started to laugh hard, actually, because she was so happy that she was saved and that the line was leaving. But the line picked up a piece of coal and hit her to the teeth. And it left a black mark on her front teeth. And he left. Time passed by. Many years. Until the girl forgot about the story of the line. She went back to her clan... They mourned their father, and years went by, and everything was forgotten. And she grew up, and she got married, and she had cattle, goats, and cows, and other animals. And one day, they had to move. And But before that, she had to have a, a herder. She was looking for a herder, for her sheep, and goats, and cows. And the line by then... He never forgot. He came back and introduced himself as a shepherd. And he wore shepherd clothes and introduced himself to the woman and said, I can herd your cows and your goats and everything. And she said, okay. And she accepted. And he herded her cows and cattle in general for some time. And she trusted him. And by the time they had to move, she told him to bring the cows to the mountain, but not to stay away late to come a little earlier that day because they had to move and there was one specific bowl they used to carry her things so she said please bring the cows and also bring the bowl that uh, we used to carry the uh, luggage and everything and the tent and all that they had a tent the lion went to the mountains devoured that bull killed him and ate him and wore his skin and he came back down very late it was almost dark by then everybody in the tribe had already left and so she was waiting wondering what uh, was happening and then suddenly the lion and the skin of uh, of the bull and uh, she didn't know where the herd the, the, the shepherd was so, of course, she started putting things on the bull. 
And as soon as she put everything on his back, he just shakes everything off and everything falls down. And it was getting darker and she did that again and again. And at some point she was tired of that. And uh, she was uh, also angry. And she went off and looked for a stick and she wanted to hit him on his head. Also, she was surprised because it was the bull who always was obeyed. And by the time she got back, the skin was off, and there was no bull, there was the lion. He said, do you remember me? She said, I do. He said, what are you going to do now? She said, nothing. He said, I'm going to devour you. She said, my destiny. She said, I'm going to ask you a favor. He said, whatever you can ask now. It was dark, her people were away, it was granted that the lion would devour her. She said, I'm going to say two words. And he said, you can say four. And she called, Buizagen, Buizagen. And it happened that Buizagen was her brother. And he had Sirhan, a swift horse, runs distances and uh, runs quick. And he heard her name. And he came running until he got to the place where she was with the lion. The lion asked her, what was that? She said, it is just my dog. And he said, what do you want your dog for? He said, she said, I want to know that when I will die, that my dog will be here to lick up my blood. So the lion believed it. Boisegan came running swiftly there was foam coming and running on of course riding his horse and by the time he got close to her he said sister what's going on she said the lion wants to devour me and by the time he got closer he said ride behind me on Sarhan on the horse and which she did and he ran swiftly away and the lion stayed there and I didn't know what happened afterwards and the girl was saved so that's how the story ends. Yes. So there's a lack of resolution here, I think, or or is there? It, it, I, you know, there are lots of other stories that have resolutions, and some of them are actually cruel resolutions. There is another story that I can share with you some other day where basically the line of the story leads us to believe that the most, the cruelest protagonists of the story are the ones who win at the end. Now, this is a a complicated process to understand if the story carries a message. And uh, let's not forget also that these stories are told to kids that are four years old, five years old, until, you know, some of them are also told to adults. Of course, they're told in a safe environment, but they're also a little scary. Why would you tell a story to a child like that? I mean, details are many, and uh, I had to refer myself to other uh, scholars uh, who uh, wrote stories like this where I found, I found some consolation that a story without a resolution uh, is a story where at least the ones in danger uh, are saved, but the danger is still there. So the line is still alive. He might come back. So... From my own personal perspective, and this is not a theory, this is just an interpretation. Stories can have many interpretations. 
maybe each individual interprets their own story the the way it the way they're you know according to their psychology to me it means that yes you are safe this time and even in 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 the biggest danger there is always someone who can save you but you cannot just close your eyes definitively then and be safe in absolute terms you have to keep an eye because the line is still there and he might again come back so keep your eyes open and uh, and be cautious there's danger i want to ask just briefly about um the narrative and the narrator of, of these stories and i you said you found similar themes um similar types of stories in other places how do does each author um, if we want to call them that, uh, adapt or write their own new story within these themes or, or even invent new ones? Do you have a sense of how, how do you understand authorship and the role of the narrator or, or however we want to call these, uh, a storyteller in these circumstances? I don't have a definitive answer for you because I'm still looking at other stories from other places. Uh, we can definitely say that they share common themes, and they have uh, they they come into 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 different classes. Of course, there's there's a lot of work being done uh, by uh, scholars who have classified all kinds of types of folk tales in the world. Actually, uni- folk tale is a universal, um, let's say, phenomena or narrative. Now. Uh, when it comes to the authors themselves, uh, one thing we we uh, we uh, we need not to forget is that uh, telling a story is a bit of a performance itself. So some people, like my brother, for example, adds details to the story. I've noticed that you know the line of the story is that there was a man, a knife, a line, a girl, two shepherds, a mule and then a line again. You could tell a story in five minutes, and it could still be entertaining, and it could still have some sort of a message for kids, and still distracting if dinner is not already there. My brother adds so many ornaments to it, and sometimes you forget that he's actually adding, because it's his own performance. It's very individual. He makes it personal, and he sometimes even... I notice that other storytellers add details that are compatible to the context where they're telling the story. So, in a sense, there is an author, but also in a sense, if you think about uh, in in uh, in literature terms, you can also think about the death of the author himself or herself. Like he, the, the author, doesn't involve herself or himself anymore in the story uh, that 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 the story tells itself sometimes because it is a historical because there is a once upon a time. Not in the middle atlas, not anywhere. Nobody knows, and there's no definite time to it. So, in that sense, the author even the author becomes the quote unquote becomes just a, a mediator. And for the the future of the of these stories um, and their kind of utility for understanding, um, you mentioned utility for understanding linguistics, um, but I mean, do they do they say something more about? Um, either the region in which they're collected. I mean, you say that they're sort of ahistorical in some sense, 
maybe even a geographic if we want to say that but can we glean other information about the context in which these stories are told and collected and heard definitely this tells you at the beginning and this is again a, a tentative idea that i'm sharing with you because the more you look at these stories the more you actually read them which is not so politically correct to read a story you never read a story you always tell a story and uh, lots of scholars uh, uh, never recommend to read a story always tell a story to children even to adults a story is to be told not to be read the more you like I said the more you read these stories the more details you glean and I'm using your word glean because it's actually about finding small details within big lines big narratives um Maybe the most important thing to start with is that because of these common points that you find with other stories and because they are ahistorical, makes us think, at least makes me think at some point that there is a universal mind. Uh, there is, uh, there's definitely uh, more than one shared human thought about life and the purpose of life and the dangers of life and the dynamics of power and the dynamics of self-protection, self-defense, uh, asking for help, giving help, responding to power and things like that. Uh, you, can, you could definitely uh, uh, find that in those stories if you're interested. Uh, and there's plenty of other details that you could find about the, probably the lifestyle of people also, you know. Uh, nomadism is something that you could find in the story that I just told you people moving and of course in real life I was told that at some point people used uh, uh, bulls or, or, or oxen to, to, to carry luggage something that you don't do anymore these days where I come from or anywhere else I know at least in Morocco but that is a, a detail that's a historical it's a very relevant uh, historical detail that might interest more than one person so we talked a little well we've talked a lot actually about about stories um, and storytelling but you've also alluded to other sorts of um, of oral traditions, like songs um, and uh, proverbs, things. Yes, things like this. What um, maybe you could talk about how they differ in both in their dissemination and how they're told and shared. Um, the sorts of messages that they that they contain. Uh, the most common form of oral tradition, uh, at least in the Middle Atlas, but I know it's also the case in other regions in Morocco, both up north and uh, down in the south, are songs. And these are musical performances. They are very common because you meet singers everywhere you go. Uh, you encounter them in weddings and uh, music attracts people of course music gets lots of people together so this is the most common one and this is where I want to put uh, uh, a lot of my energy after I finish my uh, doctoral uh, dissertation songs they are more accurate more relevant to the actual context where we're living there's songs about love and 
lack of love and lack of passion, uh, desperation, frustration. There are lots of songs also about how difficult love is, life is in the middle of us, and, uh, and so on and so forth. So these are actually uh, relevant, updated, uh, this is relevant and updated material. And then you go to idioms and proverbs. They say much, as you know, about the life of people and how, and how people see life and how people make meaning of their daily life sometimes even. And you also have uh, historical accounts and uh, uh, stories of saints also. That's very important to collect. They tell you a lot about you know, how people perform religious ceremonies, how they ask for rain in case of drought and things like that. This is what I want to take this uh, more. I want to publish more of these uh, of this uh, of this material that that is more updated. As to the folk tales, like we said, they're a historical. They're less common. They're less disseminated, uh, and they're probably more useful for other reasons, but less useful if you want to, to know or to get a r- real picture of how uh, life uh, goes on in the in the Middle Atlas. Well, this has been a really interesting introduction to the. Um, to the oral traditions of the Middle Atlas in Morocco. Uh, Yellens, I want to thank you so much for joining the podcast and for sharing with us these, um, your, not only your work, but uh, these traditions and these, um, and these stories that have, have a, a long, like you say, a long trajectory, a long history, and, and, and a personal one. It was my pleasure. Thank you for coming to the Dutch Institute and uh, for taking your time to record this material, and uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, you can find out more about Yellens and about um, uh, the oral traditions of the Middle Atlas by visiting our website, tajin.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.